And so geneticists working with DNA samples and climatologists working with estimates of historical pollen levels have determined that this is the last handkerchief that Abraham Lincoln used before departing Springfield for Washington, D.C. Before I end our Lincoln, the man behind the myth tour, and you all enjoy your free horseshoe sandwiches, are there any questions? Yes, Miss Selene. Perhaps you recognize me. I'm noted historian Dr. Dabney Nair, author of Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, an American Life. Yeah, I'm waiting for the resale value on my signed first edition to crack double digits on eBay. What's your question? Well, don't you find it curious that Illinois is known as the land of Lincoln when the 16th president was born in Kentucky, as opposed to, say, the land of Reagan, since the 40th president was born here in Tampico? There's too many Democrats in Illinois for it to ever be known as the land of Reagan. You are, I assume, aware that both Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan are Republicans. In name only. In the 120 years between the Lincoln and Reagan administrations, there was a massive political realignment that you should learn about before writing your upcoming book, Franklin Roosevelt and American Life. Anyone else have a question? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, the second part of our two-part episode of President 16, Abraham Lincoln. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. Today's guest historian is Dr. Matthew Norman from the University of Cincinnati at Blue Ash. He joins DB Comedy's resident historians, Dr. Chelsea Denote and James McRae. I'm going to throw out just to play the devil's advocate, the stuff that made him a bad president that doesn't make it into the hagiography. Uh, I mean, I, I would say picking Andrew Johnson instead of running with Ham- Hannibal Hamlin again probably was not the best decision. But it helped him get reelected. Now, there's also the fact Andrew Johnson will will rip him several new ones, but there's also the fact that, you know, Lincoln presided over the biggest mass execution of prisoners in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And he, let's see, he presided over the great, you know, arguably the biggest violation of civil rights when he had however many thousands of people arrested without trial Habeas during the Civil War. And, and the, the, uh, the execution was the, the Minnesota War. Oh, yes, uh, of Native Americans. It, Wow. Uh, right. with Native Americans fighting against settlers in Minnesota, uh, a mass and of course, of, and of course, his advocacy of censorship. Yes, can we talk you about I have his relationship with the press? Yeah, I mean, I can I can take those on if you want me to. Please, please. Okay, the longest telegram in Lincoln's papers pertains to the uh, court martials of the. Sioux Indians from that uprising in 1862. And if the leadership, the white leadership in Minnesota, including the civil authorities and the military authorities had had their way, uh, all 300 would have been summarily executed. But much to their chagrin, Lincoln insisted on personally reviewing every single case. And that's how you get to, what is it? I think it was 38, wasn't it, or something like that? I, I can get the exact number if you want to, but it, but, but it could have been uh, 300. Uh, it was 39. 
So the other 260 plus Lincoln had their sentences commuted. Hmm. Now, if, I mean, if we're, if we're arraigning presidents for their um, policies regarding Native Americans. There's no president who's going he's to, low on the list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's no president who's going to who's going to come out well. Mm-hmm. They're all bad in their own ways. Uh, but and this this business with Lincoln and and the Dakota comes up a lot. And I mean, it's what I point out is that Lincoln was actually trying to exercise some some mercy and discretion, and it didn't make uh, white people in Minnesota happy at all. And again, the longest telegram is of those 300 names that Lincoln insisted be, and he wanted all of their files sent so that he could review them personally, which he did. And Lincoln Let's attack, go for counterfactuals. Well, Lincoln ahead, in fact, actually uh, responded. Uh, the governor of Minnesota at the time said that, you know, if you had just killed all 303 of them, you would have gotten more votes. Yeah. Uh, and Lincoln responded that, that I could not afford to hang men for votes. Well, and, and in fact, the authorities say to Lincoln, well, you know, if you have personal qualms, yeah, just let the state authorities carry out these executions. The federal government doesn't have to do this. Yeah. Indians weren't citizens at the time, were they? They were not, no. And would he have advocated for Indian citizenship, do you think, had he survived in the counterfactual? Um, I, I don't know. That's... I, I don't know why he wouldn't have, but that, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't actually happen until the 1920s. Right. So I do although, have, if I, I do recall, have a, it was advocated by our man, Ulysses Grant. Right. Who mm-hmm. did actually advocate for Indian citizenship. Yeah, that, that was a good dude. Babe? Abraham! Oh, there you are. Oh, I was having such a fright. I do hate it when you disappear like this, traipsing off in the middle of the night. Oh, heaven knows what could befall you. Oh, you know there are treasonous assassins out there who would love nothing more than to Hush, hush, Mary, there's something coming in over the wires. (gasps) Oh, is it news about the war? The troops in Charleston? Uh, no, it's just General Scott begging for more equipment again. Let's see, <clears throat> how shall I reply? Uh, <clears throat> Winfield, at the rate you are losing our boys, you should have plenty of bayonets for the rest. 200 bassinets. Oh, no, you fool! Damn, I hate when my finger slips. Abraham, it is 2 a.m. Will you get away from that inferno telegraph and get some sleep? Oh, I can't sleep, Mary. Besides, I can't help it. This newfangled communication tool is the most fun I've had since I was splitting rails with Joshua Speed. It's fast as lightning. I can find out what is happening on a battlefield or what the price of gold is in seconds, rather than waiting days for the post or a messenger to arrive. It's revolutionary. I tried to bring it to the water closet so I could contemplate my replies, but that stodgy Thomas Eckert refused Blast's hide. Oh, that device is more addictive than laudanum. You have been spending all hours of the day and night worrying in the war room, twittering like a bird on this machine, instead of worrying in the Oval Office or, or worrying in our bedroom with me. I have to talk to poor Willie's ghost all by my lonesome. (laughs) Where is Papa? He moans. And I have to tell him, Papa's running a war with dots and dashes. Mary, Mary, my love, I don't mean to neglect you or my office. I know it may seem silly to you, but I'm telling you this machine can change the world. Just imagine what instantaneous communication can mean to the press, to commerce, to families who can speak and connect across the world. I see it as a device that will make America more informed than ever before. (laughs) See, here, you would not believe what John Brown's body is doing now. John Brown's body? Isn't it moldering in the grave? Well... So what is it doing? Oh, it's only teasing us. We have to subscribe to its telegraph feed to find out. What a scam. Why, I can just consult my Ouija board to verify those claims. Forget that, dear. Here, one simple trick to alleviate typhoid. No! Okay, too soon. Uh, Oh, perhaps you'd be more interested in Edward Booth's hot takes. 
Now, why would I care what Edwin Booth thinks of politics? How can a mere actor possibly influence the direction of the country? One shouldn't discount cultural influences, Mary. You always were media-obsessed, dear, and so cunning at manipulating the press. Do you remember Samson's ghost? <laughs> My alter ego under which I wrote anonymous letters to the Sangamon Journal. And that German newspaper you bought. Well, public sentiment is everything, darling. With it, nothing can fail. Against it, nothing can succeed. The best way to avoid vicious attacks from your opponents is to attack them even more viciously first. But this, this telegraph... Is utter foolishness. A news in a flash. People will be bombarded with misinformation, with unverified facts, with... with Come on, what have we got here? Oh, confound it, an advertisement from A.T. Stewart Department Store announcing bargain prices on lace gloves. (laughs) You may be right after all, Mary. Instantaneous communication tools will be reduced to the lowest common denominator. Wait, 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 wait. what's that? Lace gloves? (laughs) Let, Let me see that telegram, Abe. So this is something uh, through line we brought up in, you know, earlier episodes that you can be an abolitionist and still be a racist. Yes. And Lincoln, Lincoln was certainly anti-slavery, but he was not an abolitionist. And or early be anti-slavery on, and not be. Still yeah. Be. Early on in Lincoln's political career, uh, when he's in the Illinois General Assembly, uh, he and another member, uh, offer a resolution which says that slavery is bad policy. Slavery is wrong, but we don't agree with abolitionists either. And Lincoln, I think, was very consistent in that position that he was opposed to slavery. He thought it was a moral evil, but he did not agree with the methods of the abolitionists who wanted slavery abolished yesterday. And Early in his presidency, Lincoln, of course, is faced with this task of civil war, and he's also under growing pressure to do something about slavery. And his initial efforts are something that he had first introduced when he was in Congress, and that was a plan for gradual compensated emancipation. Lincoln had drawn up a plan for this while he was in Congress for Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. was an area that was clearly under the federal government's control. And Lincoln was appalled to see from the windows of the Capitol, he says this in one of his speeches, that you could look out from the windows of the Capitol and see one of the largest slave trading operations in the United States. And this was appalling, and this was a great cause for abolitionists. They had frequently petitioned Congress to do something about this. I think what's really telling about Abraham Lincoln and I've been through his, all of his papers at the Library of Congress. I've read everything that's in there. And there's, there's no letter from anyone in, in his papers that, that says to Lincoln while he's in Congress, do something about slavery in Washington, D.C. Hmm. This is, I think, something that Lincoln just believed was wrong. And it wasn't because of pressure from his constituents in, in Springfield. He, he thought that this was wrong. And again, this is a Henry Clay idea. Uh, Early on in Lincoln's presidency, he favored colonization, Mm -hmm. where you would have freed people sent somewhere else. And and Lincoln has this famous slash infamous meeting at the White House in the summer of 1862, where he meets with a delegation of black men. And he says, uh, it would be better. All of us would be better off. You'd be better off. White people would be better off if black people left. And... Congress had appropriated money for colonization and Lincoln was trying to convince these men that that they should leave, that they should go somewhere else. And Lincoln actually had people exploring possibilities for colonies to be formed for this purpose. Send them to Panama and let them dig a canal. That's right. They they wanted to send them to Libya. Liberia. Liberia. Liberia was Monroe. Monroe. One of the capitals Monrovia, yeah. Yeah, Lincoln, uh, I thought it was Belize. Well, it was Central America, and it was... Um, 
some some yeah Panama what, what pre, where present day Panama is the idea was that uh, former American slaves could be sent there and there was yeah, coal deposits there and the idea was that they could they could mine coal and the United States government would buy that coal to fuel our ships in the Navy and but that plan never got off the ground due to opposition from neighboring Latin American countries. If, when, so for once, we actually cared what they thought? Yes, sort of. <laughs> or at least didn't care enough to follow through with the plan. <laughs> Go ahead, James. Okay, so this is, and I, I guess, um, you know, you, my fellow historians could kind of try this on, but it is that the ultimate tragedy of Abraham Lincoln is that you have someone who starts out as ambitious, but perhaps cautious, cautious to act on his his moral instinct because he thinks that it's not a politically winning issue and he is fundamentally a politician who wants to win and be in power and then all of a sudden he gets in this situation um whereby there's a you know a great civil war and i think this is the period when lincoln finally decides you know the civil war is not going to be for naught you know we're we're not going to have all these people to have died just to simply go back to the way things were that saving the union isn't enough, that we must deal with the issue of slavery now. And that's kind of where he, you know, finds his, his moral fiber and, and finally decides to, to do stuff about it. The tragedy of Lincoln, though, is that with his death and then with the failure of Reconstruction, that the ultimate goal of, you know, trying to create a unified and, you know, relatively equal United States was a project that, would at the very least be delayed another hundred years. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, Lincoln for me is an incremental revolutionary <laughs> where he knows where he wants to go, but he's not going to take one giant leap necessarily to get there. He wants to take small steps. And that's what you see during the first year of the war where he's getting all kinds of criticism from various directions. There are people who are criticizing Lincoln like Frederick Douglass and abolition, other abolitionists who say, well, why isn't Lincoln doing anything about slavery? Why is he revoking this emancipation order that General Fremont has issued in Missouri? Why, why has he done this with General Hunter in the South in 1862? But what Lincoln is proposing is what he had drawn up back when he was in Congress, which is a plan for gradual compensated emancipation. You get rid of this evil, but you do it gradually and the, and the federal government will pay slave owners for their slaves. And I think what Lincoln was guilty of was underestimating how strongly attached slave owners were to their slaves. Even in the loyal border slave states where Lincoln was really pushing this plan, and where he was losing the war at certain points. Well, he was, and, and that was one of the reasons why he was taking this gradual approach. He did not want to alienate Kentucky. Because so, he thought that if Kentucky joined the Confederacy, that was it. There was no way that the United States would, would win this war. But he's telling these Southerners, these loyal Southerners, look, the federal government will pay you for your slaves. Just, just give them up. And this will shorten the war. Mm -hmm. And it will demonstrate to the rebels that you will never join them and it'll save us money. But what these, what a majority of these Southern members of Congress tell Lincoln is that giving up our slaves was in their words, too radical of a change to our social system. And for Lincoln, it was, it was wrong, but well, it's, a, it's property. We'll pay you for your property. Right. How can you turn that down? Well, they did. And that's when Lincoln then pulls out the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> Says, okay, well. You had your chance. You had your chance. Yeah. And he warned them. He said, uh, take a deal now while you can get it, because he, he warns them. And he says that slavery will end through friction and abrasion. The, the war is going to result in the end of slavery. And whether you get any compensation for your slaves or not is, is up to you. Ah, it's good to stand up after such a long event. Mr. President. Uh, Mr. Edward Everett. It was an honor to listen to you at the solemn yet important occasion. The Battle of Gettysburg was brutal. May it truly help bring the Civil War to a quick conclusion. 
a lovely turn of phrase for the dedication of the first national cemetery of our country. I commend you on your delivery of the main speech to today's event. And I thank you for the succinct conclusion to the day's events. Conclusion. I must say, I was flattered, such to speak after me, and you chose to be commendably brief. Well, following the energy and stamina of the two hours you held the dais... My reputation as America's foremost orator preceded me. I had to be at my best, knowing that one of the greatest orators of American political history was to follow me. I endeavored to weave together Athenian law, the majestic Allegheny Mountains, and the solemn event of opening a national cemetery, all in under two hours. Yes. Well, I'm sure the crowd appreciated the description of their own mountain range. And all without notes. That certainly was impressive. Yet, uh... You took all the five minutes to close the ceremonies reading off notes. I saw no need to take any more time than you already took. As for the content, I do not wish to claim myself an expert at political policy, however. However. I am an expert on auditorical prose and, well, uh, may I see your transcript? I suppose, but... Hmm, thank you, thank you. Um... Four score and seven years ago. Four score? It's 87 years. Why not just say 87 years? Nobody knows what a score is anymore. Uh, Yes, yes, I I see your point. Where is my carriage? Also, our fathers brought forth onto this continent, as opposed to another continent we aren't aware of or are on right now. I see. Now, will you excuse me? I have... I do note your honesty here. The world will little note nor long remember what is said here. Always honest, Abe. I take your notes for their constructive nature. Can we get a carriage for the president, but please? Then, president of the United back States. Back to the beginning. Neither dedicated I. to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, the Constitution... The Declaration of Independence, Mr. Evers. Begging your pardon? If you must give me notes... Accuracy is important. The phrase I am quoting from is the Declaration of Independence. It is. Does the foremost generator of acres of political prose in all of America not know the words of the foundation of the country? Yes, of course, but is not American politics, not to mention jurisprudence, built upon the Constitution? Spoken like the former legislator you were before finding your new vocation as a public speaker. Well, admittedly, it has been years since I held elective office. I don't mean to shame you, my dear and esteemed Mr. Edward Everett. But my speech, while brief, is an effort to shift the focus of the purpose of the war. We must begin to think about what this country will be when this war ends. On that, we agree. Good to hear. This address hopes to begin to suggest a direction closer to the spirit of the country when we broke away from the British. Oh, uh, yes. You do understand the nuances of constitutional law and the the works of our founding fathers when they established the Republic, do you now? (laughs) And you do understand that one cannot enter into detail in the midst of an ongoing conflict, but must still plan for such work, don't you? Which is why sometimes it is better to speak with economy and brevity, even when one humbly suggests otherwise. I see that the speeches. More dense than I realized. I shall think about what you said. It was an honor to be here. Oh, look, your carriage appears to have arrived, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. Evers. I shall think of you whenever I hear a long, hot wind blowing through the Alleghenies. Yes, thank you, Mr. President. In retrospect, I should have been glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of this occasion in two hours as the president did in two minutes. But nobody knows what a score is these days. He issues the Emancipation Proclamation, and of course, it has all of these caveats where it only applies to areas in rebellion, and cynics will say, well, Lincoln freed no slaves. And yet, um, 
the book I'm doing now is a collection of African-American speeches and writings on Lincoln. And opinion on Lincoln just switched overnight with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, that most African-Americans were very frustrated with Lincoln by 1862 because they thought he wasn't really doing anything. He wasn't moving fast enough. But even with all of the limitations of the Emancipation Proclamation, they understood better than anyone else the revolutionary implications of this document. Because it meant now that the war was not just about preserving the Union, it was now a war about abolishing slavery. And, and they were still going back for Lincoln. And that's the other thing about Lincoln that uh, frustrates me about some of these alternate histories is, oh, well, you know, Lincoln would have made some kind of negotiated deal. He would have done, he wouldn't. Once he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he famously said, you know, broken eggs cannot be mended. And I'm not going back on this. I've made a promise and I'm keeping this promise. And it undoubtedly put a literal target on him that. But yes, Lincoln, Lincoln delivers his second inaugural address at the Capitol on March 4, 1865. And I, I think it's his greatest speech. I think it surpasses even his speech at Gettysburg in November 1863. I think the second inaugural is Lincoln's greatest speech. Well, but, it's longer, we know that. <laughs> well, they're about the same. They're, it's a little bit longer. It is a little it's bit It's the shortest longer. inaugural speech in history. Oh, really? Oh. As a speech teacher, I should have known that. I am embarrassed. <laughs> They both conveniently fit on walls inside the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> how short they both are. And, you, and you in that those pithy, pithy short speeches. Yes. Well, Lincoln uh, had this talent for what Herndon called getting to the nub of the issue. And in his second inaugural address, he, I think he really defied people's expectations. I mean, when you think about second inaugurals, what, what do presidents typically do? They typically focus on, oh, this is all the, these are all the things I've accomplished in my first term, and this is what I want to do in my second term, and gee, aren't I great, and my administration's great. And they don't but, even have inaugural balls for the second right? one. Right, and, uh, but what Lincoln did is he attempted to explain why the war had lasted so long and cost so much. And he says in his second inaugural address that, that this war is God's punishment for the sin of slavery. And that all Americans are equally guilty of that sin. And that's why we are all being punished. And he suggests that the, uh, what he calls the 250 years of unrequited toil has to be paid for. And he says, if it's every drop of blood that's been drawn with the lash shall be paid for another that's drawn with the sword, then that's, that's God's way of punishing the nation. And Frederick Douglass is there and Lincoln sees him in the audience. And if you've read Frederick Douglass's, he wrote three autobiographies, but his first one is the most famous, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave that came out in the 1840s. Uh, Douglass's earliest memory, one of his earliest memories is of watching his aunt being whipped and, and the blood running down her back. And so you think of Douglas there hearing President Lincoln talk about every drop of blood drawn with a lash. And that resonated with Frederick Douglass. Douglass knew exactly what Lincoln was talking about. And in fact, what Lincoln was saying was something that abolitionists had been saying for a long time, which was that slavery is a sin and we're all guilty and we're all going to pay for it. And in fact, that's what John Brown wrote in the final thing that he wrote right before he was executed. He handed his jailer a note that said, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land shall never be purged away, but with blood. And that's essentially what Lincoln is saying in March, 1865. Mm -hmm. And Douglas liked that speech so much that he decided he was going to go to the White House and congratulate Lincoln. And this Did he was- sit on Lincoln's lap? No, he didn't. Oh, he did not sit on oh, that's, oh that's another Douglas, sorry. Stephen. <laughs> he did not sit on Lincoln's lap. Uh, this was a tradition that had begun with Andrew Jackson, uh, an open, open house at the White House on Inauguration Day. And Douglas had a hard time getting in because he was a black man. And he loved telling this story, but eventually Douglas darted past the guards and got into the reception room. And Lincoln saw Douglas from across the room and he said, ah, there's my friend Douglas because they had met on a couple of prior occasions. And Lincoln motioned for Douglas to, to come over to him. 
And Douglas did. And Lincoln says, I saw you at the Capitol earlier today. What, what did you make of my speech? And, and Douglas was kind of taken aback that President Lincoln would ask him what he thought of his speech. But he said, sir, I thought it was a sacred effort. And that's the last time they met. Because Lincoln, of course, is assassinated just a few weeks later. I was just going to say, you know, his, you know, we like to talk about the second inaugural as his greatest speech, and very much it was. Um, but it's so interesting to think, you know, his last speech uh, in early April, he basically says, like, yep, black suffrage. Let's get on the train. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of historians, maybe not a lot, but I know... <laughs> Some historians have pointed actually to that as being the thing that kind of broke the hump on the on John Wilkes Booth Campbell's back. Well, yeah, we have that on uh, the, the the yeah Booth was there. Yeah, and he heard that speech, and there's a witness who was with Booth who who says that uh, as soon as Lincoln and in, in in that speech Lincoln endorses a uh, a very qualified African American suffrage where he says that. I personally think that those who, who are highly intelligent and who have served gallantly in our ranks should vote. Um, but when Booth hears that, he says, uh, well, that means citizenship. And then he, you know, he used the N-word. And then he says, by God, I'll run him through. And that's exactly what Booth did three nights later. Because he was extremely stupid. And even if he was appearing in Julius Caesar, he should have known that assassinations have really bad blowback. <laughs> I think he was maybe deluded and thought that this, that by assassinating Lincoln, and this, by the way, this was part of a broader conspiracy to assassinate not only President Lincoln, but Vice President Johnson and Secretary of State Seward. So this was like an effort to decapitate the highest levels of the United States government and maybe breathe new life into the rebellion. And Johnson's, Johnson's assassin was smart enough to realize that leaving him alive was actually worse for the Union. Yeah, Johnson's assassin got cold feet and never attempted and it. And got drunk. But Seward, Seward was nearly assassinated. And in fact, there were initial reports that Seward had been assassinated. Seward had been in a, bar- a very bad carriage accident. And he was in his sick bed in his home in Washington. And the assassin broke into Seward's room and had a large Bowie knife that he slashed Seward's throat with, but Seward had broken his jaw and was wearing this leather <laughs> harness to keep his jaw in place. And that prevented Seward from, from being murdered that night. Uh, uh, we've been not, talking to about things, not, not to turn things dark or anything, but like we certainly have no familiarity with white supremacists trying to overthrow the federal government. Not at all. Not not at all. It was never an issue again. Um, kind of the, we've, we've been talking a little bit about Lincoln's attitude about the slaves and his opposition to slavery and going back to, um, the sort of the myth of Lincoln. I, there, I, again, growing up and going to history classes, you kind of get this. I, I, at least, I, at least I got the sense that Lincoln was sort of born pure. Like he was always anti-slavery and therefore that made what he did in the Civil War so great and what made his assassination so tragic. Um, and of course, in a black, you know, in the world of Black Lives Matter and, you know, let me also acknowledge the listening audience that we have a group of white people discuss- <laughs> discussing this, but, and that needs to be acknowledged, but how, tr- I mean, where, I mean, again, is that part of the hagography that you were talking about that emerged post Lincoln? And um, how did he come to being anti slave? Well, I, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of evidence early on in Lincoln's career that he was, he was appalled by slavery. Uh, as a young man, he, um, one of the things he did to make some money was he, he worked on a flat boat. And this flatboat took goods from Illinois down to New Orleans. And, and that was where Lincoln really witnessed um, slavery. And, 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 and now, you know, you get into the mythology where some, 
some of the people who were with, with Lincoln, one of them later said, well, this is when Lincoln says that if I can ever hit that, I'm going to hit it hard, meaning he's going to do something about slavery. He said that about Mary, too. Yeah. I think she said that about him, actually, yeah. Paul. <laughs> there, is, there is a story of her uh, chasing him outside. Uh, yeah, trying to to get him. Yeah. While but, he, while he was running away from the Illinois uh, legislature. Or? No, this is before. <laughs> this is after that. This is after that. But this is after they were married. And, yeah. So, like, some of their marriage was an Andy Cap cartoon. She's you know chasing <laughs> around with rolling pin and. <laughs> Yeah, it turns out Abraham Lincoln makes delicious uh, potato straws. <laughs> Handicap joke for those of us <laughs> for you. our audience there. Appealing <laughs> to the younger, younger demographic there with Andy Cap references. I was gonna, <laughs> that is our younger demographic. I was Tommy. Gonna... <laughs> That's impressive, Tommy. Welcome to Bravo's The Real First Ladies of Springfield. I'm your sassy gay host, Andy Candius, here in the studio with the four lovely ladies who survived the brutal world of Illinois politics and emerged looking fabulous. Joining me is Mary Todd Lincoln in a fantastically kitschy balloon dress and bonnet. Thank you for what I assume is a compliment to Mr. Candius. That's Candius. Also, here is the always stylish Michelle Obama in a pricey looking Prada A-line. Which was a gift that I'll donate after the show. Red alert, thrifters. Next is Patty Blagojevich looking confident in a Wonder Woman costume. Costume? What costume? I am Wonder Woman. Who else could I be after the way I got my husband out of prison? I've never seen Wonder Woman accessorized with a MAGA hat, but you do you, Patty. And last but not least, in a very flattering retro chic sweater dress is, uh, Helen McCooner. Hi, thank you for having me, Mr. Candy Ass. You know, why don't you just all call me Andy, okay? Mm. So, Helena, I am sure almost everyone in our audience knows who you are, but why, why don't you introduce yourself anyway? I'd be happy to. My husband, Otto, was the Democratic governor of Illinois from 1962 to 1968. Oh, and here I thought that bouffant was ironic. Mm. Anyway, we are dressed to kill and out to thrill, so let's get to our audience's question. I'm sure they're all dying to hear your fashion tips. Kathy from Kiskaskia. Oh, the territorial capital of Illinois, and briefly the state capital after we joined the Union in 1818. Thanks, very enlightening. Anyway, Kathy from Kaskaskia says, Mary, how did you deal with the tragedy of losing both your husband and your son while you were living in the White House? Wow, oh, I bet her TikTok is a hoot. Anyway, how did you de-stress, Mary? Well... Kathy, I was so consumed by my duty to act as a paragon of strength, I scarcely had time to mourn. I couldn't weep for my willy since I had to host a levy that very evening. Oof, heavy. Did you wear black to the party? <laughs> it seems I was in black for all my life. Mary, just like your husband was an inspiration for my auto, you were an inspiration for me. Oh, no. That's right. Every time I held my tongue when someone called me an angry black woman, I thought you'd better not complain, girl. Mary Todd Lincoln put up with a lot more. Oh, the heartland breeds warrior queens, doesn't it? Damn straight. Look at me. I am. You're kind of hard to miss in that get up. Funny. You'd think I was invisible as far as you and Barack were concerned. Lucky the 45th president realized Rod got a raw deal and let him out of jail. What can I say? We went high, you went low. As my auto would say, the fur is flying. Too bad it isn't, Mink. Uh, next up, we have Vanessa from Vandalia. Oh, Illinois' second capital, where my husband began his political career as a state legislator. And hooray for him. Anyway, Vanessa from Vandalia wants to know, Mary, have you forgiven your son Robert Todd Lincoln for having you sent to an asylum in 1875? God! Oh, more uplift. Yay. So. Did you have the perfect accessories to match that straight jacket? Yes. Robert's boot 
prints all over my heart. But, but yes, I have forgiven Robert. How could he build his fortune with his mother spending the family into bankruptcy? Hey, sometimes a girl needs a spree. So what were your favorite stores? Oh, only the finest ones that would accept my credit. I hope Sasha and Malia never treat me that way. They won't have to, Michelle. You never spend a dime on your wardrobe with Isaac Mizrahi and Jason Wu sending you dresses. Meanwhile, I'm waiting for sales at Target. <gasps> oh, oh! I didn't know how bad it had gotten for you, Patty. Bleeping oh. horrible. My auto used to tease me about my spendthrift ways. Funny guy, your auto. On to some happier questions. I hope. Allison from Alton. Oh, that was the site of the final Lincoln-Douglas debate, where my husband vanquished his rival and my one-time suitor, Stephen Douglas. So, Abraham won your heart. Tell us, Mary, was Abraham a player? Well, yes, he enjoyed parlor games from time to time. Don't we all? Anyway, Allison from Alton, asks, Mary, why did you do Why are all the questions for her? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because during her crisis, she was a helpmate and a confidant to our second greatest president. Second greatest? Well, I guess I'm biased. Oh, as a good wife should be, my dear. Jesus, you two want to be alone? None of you have any idea what I've been through in my life. None of you watched your husband, the governor, being led away in chains. Actually, I did, Patty. Wait, (gasps) your auto went to jail? Yes. Early in his administration, my auto accepted stock options from a racetrack executive that an overzealous prosecutor named Jim Thompson characterized as a bribe a dozen years later after my auto was out of office and had been appointed a federal judge. He was tried and convicted of mail fraud. Wow, that's some real law and order shit there. Jeez, Helena, what did you do to spring your auto? Considering I was deathly ill at the time, there was little I could do. The shame was that my auto had resigned as governor so that he could have more time to take care of me. Oh, you poor thing. Yes, Helena, that must have been awful. I suppose it was, but like you, Mary, I've known loss. My father was murdered when I was 27. Perhaps you've heard of him, Anton Cermak, mayor of Chicago. He was struck by a bullet meant for President Franklin Roosevelt in 1933. Oh, my! No president is safe! Oh, but Helena... When your auto... How many bugs do I gotta eat around here before I can get a little sympathy? What on earth is that dreadful woman screaming about now? Oh, when her husband was in jail as a publicity stunt, she went on a television show even dumber than this one and ate insects while on camera. (laughs) Eating insects? Patty, I'm so sorry. My auto and I had our trials, but we never became... Oh, snap! Hey! I wasn't done with that apple teeny. Well, I'm done taking shit from you bitches. I'm sick of your cheap shots, Michelle. And Helena, I don't want to hear any more about your auto unless you're talking about a Ford. Oh, no, no, no! And Mary, candid with the whining and whimpering. You're probably pushing the needles into the red in the booth. Dare you say that man's name? Go! Uh, get her to headlock, Helena! Here, take this! Cheap shot, please! Go! Ah, seeing as Mary Todd Lincoln is choking Patty Blagojevich, I guess the show is over. So tune in next week when Nancy Reagan will talk about how she wishes her favorite designers had said no to AIDS in the 80s, and Jane Thompson will continue a parade of generic governor's wives. <laughs> Nice moves, Helena. As my auto might say, six semper candy ass. That's candies. Uh. 
hey, Tommy, younger demographic boy, you have been quiet. Do you have any issues you want, Lincolnian issues you wanted to discuss? Well, you sort of hit on one earlier, and I, we've been discussing it a little obliquely, but I want to get right into it because, Paul, you were talking about like the way that Lincoln being taught has changed. Growing up, for me, definitely one of our like American saints, certainly, but I think we were also, by the time I was like studying him in school, we were deep into the depressive Lincoln. But I really wanted to ask, when did we start mythologizing Lincoln? Like how soon after his death? And was it was it immediately like it is now where we look at him and he was like, everything he did was on moral grounds and never practical, even though we know that's not true. Uh, like how, how soon did we start to mythologize him and his causes? Being assassinated, I'm sure helped that. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a martyr that way. He's mm-hmm. like our Thomas Beckett. He's a national saint who was killed in a public place. On Good Friday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's not, you can't be against Lincoln. So then the challenge is picking the Lincoln that you want that aligns with the view that you want to project. Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt like I was being taught in response to Henry Fonda's young Lincoln. Like they were like, (laughs) that's not. You know, it was like for the generation that was teaching me, they were boomers and greatest generation, even like older people. And so they that was like who they'd grown up with, where they were like Lincoln was or we were taught that Lincoln was like a very simple, honest country boy who like developed these, you know, developed a set of unflexible morals on the frontier and then brought them back east. And they were basically saying, like, we now know that's not true, which is why so many states are trying to claim him. In some way, shape, yeah. But then, what is? I, I guess maybe to dive in. What, Paul, did you mean by hero of the South or champion? Um, well, if I can elucidate a little bit, and then uh, Matt will most likely tell the truth. They <laughs> hung their hopes on Lincoln. They hung their, you know, sentimentality, their nostalgia for Lincoln, based on that second inaugural address, in which he talked about with malice towards none and charity towards all. And even as, you know, early as I'm not sure the year, maybe it was 1863, 1864, there was a radical Republican contingent in Congress that wanted like 50% of a state to declare its loyalty to the Union before it was admitted. And Lincoln said, no, let's make that 10. So even though they, you know, spent the past four or five or so years demonizing him, Compared to what they considered the dictatorship of the Reconstruction, which obviously we're going to be talking about later on, uh, Lincoln seemed like a hell of a much better option. Am I getting that right, Matt? I think that's right. Um, There are many Lincolns, and this sort of embrace of Lincoln by white Southerners occurs in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when they are desperately trying to avoid any kind of federal interference with uh, race. And and this is after the last troops have been withdrawn from the South in 1877. The South is entirely under democratic control. And the last thing that white Southerners want, most of them anyway, is a, a renewal of federal efforts to enforce civil rights or voting rights. And they then kind of and that was never an issue again. No, that's right. Yeah, it's never an issue again. Isn't that the time people, the town started to build statues to yes. the, great, the, yes. great, the, the great leaders of the war between the states? Yes, this, is the, this happens to coincide with the great effort to construct monuments to the rebels. There had been some of that before, but really it's the 1890s and, and early decades of the 20th century that's the the big boom for rebel monuments. And it's also at the same time that uh, white defenders of Jim Crow embrace Lincoln, but it's a, it's a Lincoln really, I think from the 1850s and the Lincoln Douglas debates, because in the debates, Lincoln was under heavy attack from Douglas for arguing that the declaration of independence applied to all men. And Lincoln, I think, sincerely believed that. I don't think that that was a a politician's trick because quite frankly, uh, in frontier Illinois, you're not gonna score a lot of political points by claiming that the declaration applies to not only white people, but African-Americans. And that hasn't changed at all over the years. 
Right. And Douglas said, well, Lincoln, if you think that the declaration applies to black people, that must mean that you're in favor of black people and white people getting married and black children going to school with white children. And in the debates, Lincoln attempted to clarify his position by saying that he was opposed to the social and political equality of the white and black races. In other words, Lincoln was making a very fine distinction, which even lawyers today don't often make today, which is the, the distinction between natural rights, which everyone is born with. That's what the Declaration of Independence talks about, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and civil rights and political rights, which are conferred by governments. And, and Lincoln was saying that everyone has natural rights, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has civil rights or political rights. And uh, Douglas wasn't buying that, and, and most people weren't buying that. And a lot of historians today don't buy that. But uh, white Southerners in the late 19th and early 20th centuries bought it. And they said, yeah, well, Lincoln was right. Lincoln was right. Joe, do we have to move on to uh, Andrew I Jones? Think, I think we do, but I want to put a little button on this. And just as we kind of wrap this discussion up, only because of time and other presidents to get to. On the air, thank Jennifer Gallus at Knox College, who, along with Sarah Bird, said that Dr. Norman would be perfect for this. Sandra, did you learn something today about Abraham Lincoln that you didn't know before the start of the discussion? Um, let's just say yes. <laughs> I thought it was very elucidating, even and I <laughs> enjoyed it, even if it was just reinforced a lot that we knew. And I think it reminded me of a lot of that, what made Lincoln a fascinating subject for. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Jouet, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like. <laughs>